Book Jargal by Victor Hugo Chapter 12 All these circumstances took a firm hold upon my youthful imagination. Marie, inspired by compassion and gratitude, applauded my enthusiasm, and Piero excited our interest so much that I determined to see him and serve him. I pondered over means of speaking to him. Although very young, as the nephew of one of the richest colonists in the Cap, I was captain in the Acule Militia. Fort Gallifrey was confided to their care, and to a detachment of the Yellow Dragoons, whose chief, who was ordinarily an under-officer of this company, had the command of the fort. I found that at this time the commander was the brother of a poor planter to whom I had had the good fortune to render an important service, and who was entirely devoted to me. Here the listeners interrupted Dauverny by guessing Thaddeus. "'You are right, gentlemen,' replied the captain. "'You understand that it was not difficult to obtain from him access to the Negro's cell. As a captain in the militia, I had, of course, the right to visit the fort.' However, to evade the suspicions of my uncle, whose rage was still unabated, I took care to go there at the time of his noonday siesta. All the soldiers, too, except those on guard, were asleep. Guided by Thaddeus, I arrived at the door of the cell. Thaddeus opened it, and then retired. I entered. The negro was seated, for, on account of his height, he could not stand upright. He was not alone. An enormous dog rose with a growl and moved toward me. Rask, cried the negro. The young dog ceased growling and again laid down at his master's feet and began eating some coarse food. I was in uniform, and the daylight that came through the loophole in the wall of the cell was so feeble that Piero could not distinguish who I was. I am ready, said he, in a calm voice. Finishing these words, he partly rose. I am ready, he repeated. I thought, remarked I, surprised at the ease with which he moved, I thought that you were in irons. My voice trembled with emotion. The prisoner did not appear to notice it. He shoved some pieces towards me with his foot. Irons? I have broken them. There was something in the tone in which he uttered these words that seemed to say, I was not born to wear fetters. I continued, They did not tell me that you were permitted to have a dog. It was I who brought him in. I was more and more astonished. The door of the cell was closed on the outside with three bolts. The loophole was scarcely six inches in width and had two iron bars across it. He seemed to divine my thoughts and raising as nearly erect as the low roof would permit, he pulled out with ease a large stone placed under the loophole, removed the iron bars, and displayed an opening sufficiently large to permit two men to pass through. This opening looked upon a grove of bananas and coconut trees, which covered the hill upon which the fort was built. Surprise rendered me dumb. At that moment, a ray of light fell on my face. The prisoner started as if he had accidentally trodden upon a snake, and his head struck against the ceiling of the cell. A strange mixture of opposing feelings, an expression of hatred, kindness, and astonishment passed rapidly in his eyes. 
but recovering himself with an effort, his face once more became cold and calm, and he fixed upon me an indifferent look. He regarded me as if I was entirely unknown to him. "'I can live two days more without eating,' said he. I made a movement of horror. I saw how thin he had become. He added, "'My dog will only eat from my hand, and had I not enlarged the loophole, poor Rask would have died of hunger. It is better for it to be me than him, since I am condemned to death.' "'No,' I said. "'No, you shall not die of hunger.' He misunderstood me. "'Without doubt,' answered he, with a smile. I could have lived two days yet without eating. But I am ready, officer. Today is better than tomorrow. Do not hurt Rask. Then I understood what he meant when he said, I am ready. Accused of a crime, the punishment of which was death, he believed that I had come to announce his immediate execution. And yet, this man endowed with Herculean strength, with all the avenues of escape open to him, had, in a calm and childlike manner, repeated, I am ready. Do not hurt Rask, said he, once more. I could restrain myself no longer. What? I exclaimed. Not only do you take me for your executioner, but you think so meanly of my humanity that you believe I would injure this poor dog who has never done me any harm? He paused. Then he said in a changed voice, White man, said he, offering me his hand. White man, pardon me. I love my dog. And, added he after a short silence, your race have cruelly injured me. I embraced him. I clasped his hand. I did my best to undeceive him. Do you not know me? said I. I knew that you were white, and to the white, though they may be good, a negro is such an insignificant thing. Besides, you have injured me. In what manner? exclaimed I, in surprise. Have you not twice saved my life? This strange accusation made me smile. He perceived it, and continued it bitterly. Yes, I ought to be glad— you saved me from an alligator and from a planter. And what is worse, you have taken from me the right to hate you. I am very unhappy. The strangeness of his language and of his ideas surprised me no longer. It was in harmony with himself. I owe more to you than you can owe to me. I owe you the life of my betrothed, Marie." He started as though he had received some terrible shock. Maria, repeated he in stifled tones, and his head fell into his trembling hands, whilst his bosom rose and fell with heavy sighs. I confess that once again my suspicions were aroused, but without anger or jealousy. I was too near my happiness, and he too near death to be like a rival. Even had I done so, his forlorn condition would have excited my compassion and sympathy. At last, he raised his head. Go, said he. Do not thank me. After a pause, he added, I am not, however, of a rank inferior to your own.
These words brought ideas to me which roused my curiosity. I urged him to tell me who he was and what he had suffered. He maintained an obstinate silence. My proceedings had touched him. My offers of service and my entreaties appeared to have vanquished his distaste for life. He left his cell and in a short time returned with some bananas and a large coconut. Then he reclosed the opening and began to eat. As we conversed, I remarked that he spoke French and Spanish with equal facility, and that his education had not been entirely neglected. He knew many Spanish songs, which he sang with great feeling. This man was so inexplicable from all reports that the purity of his language had not struck me. I tried anew to know the cause. He remained silent. At last, I left him with regret, after having urged on my faithful Thaddeus to permit him every possible indulgence.